Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we're talking about diabetes, uh, specifically type 1 diabetes. And I guess in the past couple of years, there's been some really interesting developments there and actually some advances in what uh, seems to be pretty outdated care that type 1 diabetics have been receiving. But uh, this study actually was in uh, I believe New England Journal of Medicine very recently. Mm. Uh, what do we know about semaglutide and type 1 diabetes? I thought that was only for type 2. Yeah, uh, you shouldn't use GLP-1s in type 1 diabetes. You have to give them insulin because otherwise they die. That's what right? the guidelines say. Yeah, that's what the guidelines <laughs> say. And we should follow the guidelines because that's what's best for the patient. 100%. Well, I think that's enough for today. <laughs> All right. Uh, more insulin for everyone, but... In all reality, imagine a study on type 1 diabetes where they use, I believe, no insulin, zero insulin. Yeah, they may have used a bit of insulin, but I think many of the patients remained insulin free. Yep. Uh, yep. I actually posted about this one when it first came out on Instagram. So that probably more detail covered there if you want to check that out. But basically, these people were very soon after their type 1 diagnosis. So within a month mm -hmm. of type 1 diagnosis, they were started on. Uh, microdose of semaglutide. It was 0.125 milligrams, which you can't get commercially. Um, we hypothesized whether this was compounded semaglutide they were using, but realistically, they were probably just doing half of the clicks on an Ozempic pen yep. to get a you know roughly 50% of the starting dose because they wanted to prevent hypoglycemia in these patients. That certainly could have been. Um... Imagine being a company and having two medications that are the exact same, semaglutide, let's just call it for what it is, Ozempic and Wegovy. And for Ozempic, you let people start at a lower dose and you do not for Wegovy. And you also happen to kind of have the same exact device as something like a Trulicity um, from a different company. So uh, yeah, I don't know how all that works within big pharma. Um, and uh, both companies have... Uh, great medications, but it is interesting to see how they would take something that is potentially very useful and then do away with it. So it's uh, like when your computer updates and you lose a feature that was very useful because you could do yeah. micro titrations with the Ozempic pens, whereas with Wagovi now you get what you get. That's basically the way it's going. Yep. Very common to see significant side effects on the starting dose of Wagovi. But uh, no need for us to rant on our soapbox on that for a long period of time. Um, the study that we're talking about also compared to other groups that were receiving standard of care. And uh, one of the studies was looking at imatinib. Another one was looking at another or a monoclonal antibody. And that's among the, uh, you know, uh, type 1 diabetes is considered an autoimmune disease. And some people like testing for antibodies. Some people don't. Maybe we touch base on that, too. What, uh, should you test for autoantibodies, uh, should you try to figure out what type of uh, type 1 diabetes? Is it uh, Modi? Is it Lada? Um, perhaps not even worrying about that if it's early onset. But um, in these studies, they looked at the initiation of these therapies and the percentage of glycolated hemoglobin. That's just hemoglobin A1c. Yeah. And they were starting off at a pretty extreme A1C level. So you would expect someone to be having symptoms at this level. I mean, they're between 11.5% and 12% A1C. For reference, someone who is non-diabetic, good metabolic health, they're going to be between 
you know, probably 4.8 and 5.6 is considered normal. If you see someone at 5.5, 5.6, you're probably, you know, looking a little bit closer to see is this person going to tip over into prediabetes in the coming years, kind of looking at their metabolic picture, uh, but very rapidly. So you know, it looks like at within six months, they had sort of caught up, you know, can't exactly say they caught up because they started different time frames after diagnosis, mm -hmm. but um, by seven months, they were doing far better than any of these two previous trials. Again, small cohort of patients, mm -hmm. I think it was 10 patients in total. Um, and I believe that their hemoglobin A1C normalized very, like in a pre-diabetic range, like not in a true diabetic range by the end of the study. Yeah, that's correct. And like we mentioned, many of them remained completely insulin free uh, because red blood cells do have a lifespan of three months, maybe a touch longer or shorter depending on the person. Um, three months after starting the semaglutide 0.125, the average A1C had gone from, uh, I believe over 12 to around seven. So that's considered a uh, pretty good control, especially for a type one diabetic at higher risk of hypoglycemia. Um, this is, there's a, a few other takeaways from this. Uh, one concept that I believe we discussed on the podcast before is the concept of beta cell preservation. And that can be both beta cell preservation while on therapy and after finishing therapy. The uh, kind of like original beta cell preserver is just insulin itself. Yeah, and you see that with type one diabetics, what they refer to as the the honeymoon period. Um, you kind of see it on this graph here, up to about four to five months. It looked like these patients on the uh, monoclonal antibody with standard of care had some improvement, and and then they sort of started deteriorating about that five six month mark, and that's kind of anywhere from three to 12 months is your typical honeymoon period, but it looks like you did not see the same honeymoon period. So again, it's a different cohort of patients, so it's not apples to apples. Um, but it was also just a, you could almost call this a microdose of semaglutide mm -hmm. uh, because the max dose they were titrated up to was 0 0.5 milligrams, um, which is almost five times less than the maximum prescribed dose of semaglutide. Um, and they have up to 7.2 milligrams in clinical trials, which is kind of wild to think of. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's the arms race of GLP-1s, which maybe we'll talk about at a different time. And we have touched base on that before. Um, but yeah, I guess since we're talking about newly diagnosed type 1 diabetics, often um, they're diagnosed relatively soon after developing the condition, sometimes not. If they have an A1C of 12, they've probably had it for several months at least because they have to glycolate that hemoglobin in order to get that high. But there is some interesting differences between screening for various comorbidities, for example, diabetic retinopathy and diabetic nephropathy. And those would be uh, things uh, like a retinal exam and screening for proteinuria and kidney function. Yeah. And we'll talk about what we think are some of the good guidelines that are in place, some things that don't seem to make a lot of sense intuitively, but a lot of times the these societies are hesitant to make a screening recommendation if there's not robust data to support it. Mm -hmm. Even if we know intuitively like, hey, this makes sense, this is probably gonna benefit the patient. Um, another newly approved uh, treatment that is on the horizon or now actually in practice is Lantidra, which is basically a pancreatic cell implantation. So mm -hmm. you have uh, deceased persons who donate their pancreas to, to science or an organ donor they harvest these cells and then they infuse them into the portal vein of patients who are type 1 diabetic. 
And a substantial portion of these patients are able to come off of insulin completely. Um, the downside of this is you, of course, are going to be on immunosuppressive therapy so that your body doesn't, you know, destroy these um, donor cells that were infused. But it's interesting that even though they're not in anatomically the same place, they're just kind of lodged there in the portal circulation mm -hmm. in the portal vein. They're still producing insulin there and it's getting into the bloodstream yep. and it's reducing hypoglycemia and reducing insulin demand sometimes completely. So if type 1 diabetes is just uh, just autoimmune destruction of beta cells, and uh, well, perhaps beta cells only make insulin, right? Then why can't we just uh, immediately put in, uh, you know, like an artificial beta cell, let's say an, an artificial uh, endocrine pancreas, if you will. Uh, beta cells are just part of the islets of Langerhans. Um, there's, of course, alpha cells as well. But yeah, why, why don't we have artificial pancreases by now? Yeah, we have, I guess you could call it half of an artificial pancreas with something like an insulin pump, mm -hmm. but uh, something that I don't believe I was made aware of and certainly not in early nursing school. I don't believe it was mentioned aside from maybe a brief line in uh, pancreatic, pancreatic uh, physiology was that the beta cells actually produce amylin as well. And there is in fact an amylin analog out there, cagrolintide, mm -hmm. that, you know, has actually been studied in combination with semaglutide. Mm -hmm. And those two seem to lead to very substantial weight loss when paired together. And you're sort of looking at like, okay, the semaglutide is fortifying the beta cells insulin production, uh, probably a bit of amylin production as well. And then you're yep. adding an amylin analog to that that helps to regulate gastric motility. So your food can pass through a bit more slowly. You're not going to be you know, shooting blood sugar quite as high. So I, I believe that's probably part of the pathology in even type 2 diabetes, you know, let alone type 1, where there's basically less than 1% of their normal insulin production. Yeah, uh, very promising. Any long, And there's a couple different long-acting amylin analogs that are being studied now. We've actually had amylin analogs for a while. The uh, old school one was called Simlin. Uh, that must have been back when you can name a medication for what it does, synthetic amylin. Um, and it's very short-acting, pramilinotide. Um, I believe is the generic name for that, but it's so short acting. Think of it like, um, you know, a mealtime insulin, which you would need to take three times a day, uh, higher risk of hypoglycemia if you don't dose it right, depending on what you're eating. Um, and it was, uh, I believe, theorized in trial to some degree to implement it into the pump with insulin, but it um, never gained popularity, partly just because um, the long acting amylin analogs are likely a superior product that can uh, have a more stable decrease in the need for insulin. Any amylin analog that you take will greatly decrease the amount of insulin that's needed both acutely and subacutely. Yeah, it seems like that's the theme we're seeing with a lot of different endocrine pathologies and treatments is taking these hormones that are in the body and acting for very short periods of time and figuring out how can we make these things more stable to where they have an action or a function that's lasting for you know, a week seems to be a pretty popular duration because yeah. you know multiple injections per day or even one injection per day is a big ask for people. If you can do something once a week, you're going to have a lot better compliance um, and you would tend to have a you know, better clinical outcome when people are compliant, mm -hmm. just like with any medication, lifestyle program, supplement. I believe we've, we have theorized about our, not poly pill, but poly injection in the past. 
a little bit of long-acting amylin analog, a little bit of dual or even triple agonist when it comes to incretin. Um, for example, GLP-1, GIP, and then a little bit of the um, myostatin inhibitor monoclonal, um, ritagrid, ritagrid, and then um, of course PCSK9 for good measure. The yeah. one missing piece from that is we need an injection that will make people want to exercise. I mean, there's they're looking at exercise medics, so pills or injections that like mimic the effects of exercise, mm -hmm. but. I think it would be great if there was a pill or an injection that you would just give to someone and they would think, hey, I'm going to start weight training and doing cardio. Yeah, maybe a microchip or a nanobot, uh, Neuralink, perhaps. Those things seem promising. <laughs> Forcing them to exercise. <laughs> Those things seem promising. Um, but yeah, all jokes aside, um, those are some interesting therapies for uh, like directly addressing the pathology. Um, we also like to talk about VEGF a lot, so perhaps we could talk about Avastin and therapies for retinopathy. Yeah, speaking of going inside the brain, uh, the standard of care for diabetic retinopathy used to be pituitary ablation. So you basically would uh, eliminate all, like, I mean, most of your hormone production. So if you don't have a pituitary, you're not going to be producing growth hormone, uh, which mm -hmm. is sort of at the root of the pathology of uh, retinopathy. And you're certainly not going to be producing uh, testosterone anymore. You ablate the pituitary. Mm -hmm. So looking at this, uh, I mean, they think these results are really impressive. So after a complete pituitary ablation, 71% uh, of patients showed a favorable response um, and then a follow-up of 43 months. And then it says 14, so another st study, I believe, 82% of the patients um, had a favorable ocular response. These were really good mm -hmm. treatment rates. The problem is growth hormone seems to be quite important for kidney function. Mm -hmm. So you would see decreased clearance of insulin and, and other proteins, um, which was problematic because, like, yeah, you've stabilized the retinopathy, but now mm -hmm. you've sped up the rate at which the nephropathy is occurring. So it was kind of a, a win-lose and, you know, fell out of favor for obvious reasons. Yeah, now we have things like Avastin, VEGF inhibitors, the opposite of BPC-157. If you happen to be type 1 diabetic, then you might want to be careful with systemic cumulative BPC-157 exposure. Yep, and then for, let's see here, the growth hormone hypersecretion, I don't think there's anything in practice directly targeting this now. Um, it's part of the dysregulation that happens in type 1 diabetes. You can't just check an IGF-1 in these patients and know what their growth hormone response is. They have a exaggerated response to growth hormone stimulation tests. It's like the, uh, the governor is broken, so yep. to speak. Uh, but whenever you treat them with a, a peptide, uh, a GHRA, actually, mm. growth hormone receptor antagonist, everyone's ears are perking up. Um, except for those antagonists. those few who heard antagonist and, <laughs> yeah. and their smiles turned upside down. All peptides are safe and effective, though, until <laughs> they go through clinical trials. <laughs> the internet would have you believe so. Uh, but in this case, I think there is about a 20% decrease in insulin needs overnight. Uh, that's when this peptide was given to these patients to antagonize the growth hormone. Interestingly, you saw improvements in insulin sensitivity with both doses, mm -hmm. even though one detail from the study is that the five milligram dose 
actually did not lower IGF-1 significantly. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's multiple inputs that are going into IGF-1 production, and it appears you would have to pretty greatly decrease growth hormone signaling in order to prevent that IGF-1 production, at least from the liver. I'm talking about you know, locally produced yeah. IGF-1 is a bit different. Uh, but again, it was something that was trialed, and it's probably not a big enough uh, benefit to someone to have made it into mainstream medicine for type 1 diabetes. I believe there was an FDA-approved uh, growth hormone receptor antagonist for acromegaly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to remember the name, but I think it starts with a P. Uh, but anyway, we can link to that in the show notes. So next we have... Um, how common is this and what does the testing look like? Yeah, about one in 200. There's a lot of individuals who um, have what we call type 1.5 diabetes as well that you can kind of put in either category. And you think it would be pretty straightforward. You know, uh, type 1 diabetes has autoantibodies and uh, autoimmune disease and they uh, tend to not have pre-existing metabolic syndrome. But there's actually a lot of people that are in between and it's hard to decide. Yeah, looking at family history can be very helpful. If this person had a parent who around the same age or an older sibling who around the same age Mm -hmm. developed what was diagnosed as type 2 diabetes despite being a fairly lean phenotype and otherwise appearing metabolically healthy, that can be a good clue. Uh, The testing can be quite cost prohibitive. So uh, getting something like a C-peptide and a fasting insulin can at least help you understand is this patient hyperinsulinemic or hypoinsulinemic. You can kind of gauge how well are these beta cells functioning. Sometimes that's done fasted. Sometimes that's done after a meal. After a meal, you're going to have high levels of C-peptide and you can kind of look at, okay, what is the reserve of this patient's pancreatic function? Um, And then not all cases of type 1 diabetes have positive autoantibodies. They're still in medicine, a lot we don't know in general, and a lot we don't know about the autoimmune processes. So um, in the future, I suspect they'll come up with some new antibodies and say, oh, we didn't know that this was also playing a role in, in pancreatic destruction and type yeah. 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's a good summary. Um, you can also test the um, basically how your beta cell is working. Um, one of the tests is called an uh, islet cell dysfunction group. But that's a, basically just a pro-insulin to insulin ratio. And I think we will have this posted on our website where you can, um, if your insurance does not cover this test, which it won't, uh, <laughs> um, then you can test both a pro-insulin and an insulin and look at the ratio between the two. If your pro-insulin is extremely high and you're not presumably not on insulin and it's not getting cross-detected, then uh, the beta cell is not taking all that pro-insulin to make insulin with it. Yeah. And... The reason that you may consider doing these tests if you're the clinician or if you're the patient, uh, let's say you do have someone that's this lean phenotype and uh, this patient happens to have good insurance, let's say, and now their insurance says, you know, yeah, metformin is what we used to do for diabetes, Mm -hmm. but now type 2 diabetics start with an SGLT2. So being the up-to-date clinician you are, you start your type 2 diabetic patient on an Mm -hmm. SGLT2. And then the patient ends up in the hospital a few months later. What happened? That patient developed euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, which in the trials where they've looked at this in type 1 diabetes, looks like somewhere in the realm of 5 to 12%. So up to 12% is a pretty high. That's a lot. 
yep. risk of that happening. And we have definitely seen this, uh, not in our own practice, because if we have a type one diabetic, we have them do urinary ketone strips and we select the right patient and we counsel them regarding the risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. But believe it or not, uh, for patients that uh, come to us from endocrinologist, it is something that we have seen multiple times. Yeah, definitely need a the right patient, someone with a great degree of health literacy, if they're going to you know, be doing something that is you know, outside of the guidelines, that we want them to have a net positive effect on their health. We don't want to be causing iatrogenic harm. One thing that we learned while researching for this podcast is that SGLT2s, as many people know, you pee out sugar, pee out electrolytes, but you retain ketones. So on top of the effect of having less glucose around, um, that can just that can push you into um, uh, using ketones as an energy source, but you have less glucose. So you're not going to check a glucose and see a glucose of 400 and think DKA. Mm-hmm. So it's very confusing. You might go to your PCP, they check a glucose, they say, oh, don't worry. You feel like you're in DKA, but you have a glucose of 100. That's you glycemic. Um, so no worries, but your ketones might be very, very high. Yeah. And there's, ketone meters for people that want to spend the money and get those but the ketone urine strips are probably the most cost-effective way to do this and kind of like no oh hey i need to you know probably pause this for Mm -hmm. about a week let things normalize out um, so that you're not you know going full-blown into dka and Mm -hmm. uh, i suppose we could call this clip um, one secret to make your keto diet 10 times more effective Um, on sglt too that should get a lot of clicks yeah that would work quite well. Um, yeah. And in the future, one other trick to make your keto diet work better, people do urinary ketone strips for that. And they take ketones like beta hydroxybutyrate and whatnot. But in the future, your CGM, like your Dexcom or your Libre will not only check glucose continuously in the interstitium, it will also check lactic, so lactic acid and also ketones. So that would be very useful for the type one diabetic population. Yeah. So now we move on to treatment and screening, uh, what is recommended and what's not. And for the most part, these guidelines, there's probably, I don't know, 40 recommendations. We don't have time to go through everything. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, like 90% of these are good recommendations that we tend to agree with. Uh, A couple that don't seem to make a lot of sense or would only apply to like a specific niche case. Uh, The first one, I think you had added this, you know, screening for proteinuria not recommended during the first five years of type one diabetes. Um, and you know, why would that be? Why would we say wait five years to see if this person's getting protein in their urine? You're waiting until they have enough damage at the glomerular membrane to get protein through. Waiting for damage. Yeah. Kind of the same reason why you would want to wait until you have a heart attack to start a PCSK9 inhibitor. Ah, guidelines. You know, the, the guidelines that are, again, best for the patient, as uh, many newly graduated medical students and residents say, um, not, uh, you know, not to hate on the guidelines. The guidelines are there for a reason. Um, again, the pyramid of evidence-based medicine is um, at the top. It is meta-analyses, systematic reviews, and then double-blinded, randomized controlled trials. Then after that, you have things like retrospective and prospective cohort studies. Then you have case control studies. And then you have a case series or even a case study. And then at the very bottom of the pyramid is expert opinion. 
But if a patient does not fit within, uh, you know, if, if they're not the studied population, for example, one of the studies we will mention is a study on a bunch of Scandinavian individuals, which have very different um, nature and nurture. They have different genetics and different lifestyle than your average American. Uh, and this recommendation just seemed really, I guess, counterintuitive to myself. You know, I, I don't see pediatrics in practice. The majority of type 1 diabetes is diagnosed during you know, your pediatric stage before adulthood. But there is a percent of late onset type 1 diabetes that does occur. And that's what I tend to see in my practice because mm -hmm. I'm only seeing adults. So it's a bit of selection bias there. Yep. Um, but yeah, maybe if you have a eight-year-old who develops type 1 diabetes, don't necessarily need to be screening for that proteinuria. Mm -hmm. But if you have a 30-year-old who you know, develops type 1 diabetes, and we know we have interventions that can decrease that protein loss in the urine and preserve renal function, uh, the answer to the, the question of what are you going to do with the test results is pretty apparent in that latter patient in the 30-year-old. Yeah. Um, and I suppose we've already mentioned SGLT2s, which can which can help preserve renal function given the right case, but we could also mention ACEs and ARBs as being nephroprotective even at very low doses, but they're of course not without side effects. And then also um, new medications like Carindia, which is a, a type of, uh, I believe, aldosterone receptor antagonist, but it isn't, supposedly doesn't have the effects on the progesterone receptors and the androgen receptor that other medications in its class do like spironolactone. And then our next uh, recommendation that, again, seems kind of counterintuitive is in asymptomatic patients, routine screening for coronary artery disease is not recommended as it does not improve outcomes as long as ASCVD risk factors are treated. And I suppose they're referring to things like calcium scores and CCTAs here. Um, those would be probably the most common screening methods. But if you're looking at the population, type 1 diabetics living you know, 10 to 15 years less than mm -hmm. the general population, so think you know, 65 or 70 instead of 80, yep. and the bulk of that being from cardiovascular disease, yep. that seems like a very high-yield population to screen. And I think I posted about the um, CCTA versus standard of care study recently yep. on Instagram. People can check that out. But... The bottom line is that CCTA screening leads to earlier treatment, earlier intervention, and better outcomes, meaning less people having heart attacks, less people dying from heart attacks. So, I mean, the odds of a like false positive CCTA, something with a sensitivity like that, is exceedingly low. So I, I don't know, other than the cost, what the true harm of that kind of screening would be, but it's clear what the harm of not screening for coronary artery disease is and type 1 diabetes. Yeah, for a type 1 diabetic, uh, at, especially at the right age, perhaps not at age 13, but at the right age, a CCTA makes a lot of sense given that it is going to be a more significant risk factor than having an LDL of 131. And people know what we think about having uh, elevated LDL and elevated ApoB and the need for basically screening and proving that you do not have clinically significant coronary artery disease. Otherwise, it's a bit of um, cholesterol roulette, I suppose. Um, you don't yeah. want to play cholesterol roulette with your coronaries. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be a, uh, a betting individual, especially when it comes to the fact that the average person is going to die from a heart attack. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that you want to risk. 
And if it's something that you definitely want to be checking out and mm -hmm. sort of fact checking yourself, if you do have a belief that your LDL is not pathogenic, mm -hmm. then you obviously would want to know if you're wrong, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like anything else, not to overemphasize this point, but maybe it does need overemphasized. You look at the risks and the benefits of each intervention. And with the CCTA, as you mentioned, the cost, potentially the contrast, a little bit of radiation. But if you get one every five years or every two years, it's not a huge amount of radiation, um, is going to far outweigh the detriment of not getting one in a, high, in a very high risk individual like type one diabetics inevitably will be at some day. So that's a, uh, a good way to look at it. Some people would argue, why get a test that will not lead to a change in management? But we have CADRADS, again, that we've talked about, that mm -hmm. leads to pretty clear evidence-based changes in management. Yeah, and then also having the payers adopt that as this is sort of rolling out, people are getting initial CCTAs, and then if guidelines are saying, hey, we need to repeat this test at X interval, then it's going to be very difficult for payers to deny that. So I, I think it is rolling in the right direction. Uh, this is just a brief sort of overview of some of the things that go wrong in type 1 diabetes. I think in my you know, clinical education that I had, it was just like, hey, this is an insulin deficiency. Uh, these people just don't produce enough insulin. And to me, it was, you know, very strange seeing these people in the hospital where they're very brittle type 1 diabetics and they're swinging mm -hmm. from a glucose of 40 to a glucose of 400. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there has to be more at play here. So you know, one of the things that you like to say is just you know, become a sponge and then absorb everything around you and that's one of the things that you brought to my attention was, hey, there's these amylin analogs. And then, um, as our friend Derek mentioned on his podcast with Dr. Peter Tia, the growth hormone hypersecretion, that's also pathologic mm -hmm. in type 1 diabetes. Yeah. And because they don't have a lot of insulin signaling, um, they're not producing as much IGF-1 from the liver. Mm -hmm. So, again, that's sort of what leads to this broken governor where they have this hypersecretion of growth hormone because the IGF-1 can't close that feedback loop and it just keeps on secreting. And then you've got more free fatty acids circulating, almost mimicking like insulin resistance of pregnancy or insulin resistance of uh, total parenteral nutrition in a hospital. It's another scenario where you see these fatty acids induce profound insulin resistance. Um, and then even alpha cell dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, alpha cells, so the beta cells again produce insulin and amylin, and alpha cells produce GLP-1. They are certainly not the only endogenous source of GLP-1, but they have this bit of paradox where they produce less GLP-1, but more glucagon, including uh, at times postprandially when you think you would not want to produce glucagon at all. There's many theorized reasons for this, but uh, at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what causes it, but um, perhaps it's uh, protective against uh, a hypoglycemic state when there's a lot of um, uh, exogenous insulin at play, but it appears to be the case even if they're not on insulin. So uh, we read some preclinical studies that looked at animal models and the differentiation between uh, alpha cells potentially leading to or making beta cells. But the takeaway here is there is, it is not just an insulin deficiency. There's many factors, growth hormone, IGF-1, GLP-1, glucagon. Um, uh, also, a, a thing that we thought of, the new glucagon agonist probably will not be great in type 1 diabetes. 
Yeah, yeah. And someone who already has this dysregulation of glucagon, probably not going to give it to that individual. Mm -hmm. Type 2 diabetes, that could be a different story. Could help with gluconeogenesis, which gets impaired to some degree with the GLP-1s. It may, I don't know, it's hard to say if you combine so many of these things, whether the profiles of these medications are going to balance each other out mm -hmm. or lead to more side effects. Because I know that when people that I've given glucagon to back in my hospital days, mm -hmm. uh, those people definitely do not feel great. Uh, and they tend nope. to get very they nauseous, like you. tend to throw up. So you pair that with a, a GLP-1 that also tends to make people throw up. Not yep. sure how that will play out. We'll find out. Uh, that'll be fun to see. Um, yeah, on that note, uh, I guess in a hypothetical situation, if you or someone you know happens to be a type 1 diabetic and you're going to a hormone optimization clinic or a telemedicine clinic and you know you're not you're just not building muscle quite the same, you might have a little bit too much fat. They check an IGF-1. It's it's a uh, 60. You probably need a growth hormone releasing peptide like tesamorelin or sermorelin or even CJC, right? Uh, that physician or nurse practitioner in their expert opinion may think that that's the case, but in all actuality, you probably have more growth hormone production than you need, and that's likely to make your insulin resistance problem worse rather than better. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that lower IGF-1, I think, is what we would attribute, you know, one of the, I guess, uh, pros of type 1 diabetes, just pros and cons to many disease states, like PCOS, for example, um, but they have a lower risk of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So this is seen in both you know, type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Uh, I certainly don't think that it's the low growth hormone that is you know, give, giving this lower cancer benefit, but the fact that there's no IGF-1 to drive you know, cell proliferation of these mm -hmm. atypical cells in the prostate, um, or perhaps the shorter lifespan, but I believe that's accounted for in these studies that are looking at this sort of angle specifically. So you know, yep. Probably the biggest pro is, you know, hey, you know, this specific cancer is at a lower risk, whereas uh, specifically gastrointestinal tract cancers are mm -hmm. a higher risk in type 1 diabetes, uh, but you know, prostate cancer is lower risk. And then probably the biggest con is going to be uh, macrovascular and microvascular complications, heart disease being the biggest one. Yeah. Speaking of complications, average lifespan is significantly decreased. It's a lot better than it was before we discovered my favorite peptide insulin. But um, in general, I believe it's 11 to 13 years um, uh, of a potentially shorter lifespan. Um, another interesting thought regarding prostate cancer is all that insulin binding to the insulin receptor in the liver. Um, it would not be unusual to see that decrease SHBG synthesis and production, which does help deliver androgens to the prostate. So maybe it would kind of have a, a similar benefit when it comes to total androgen pool binding to androgen receptors in the prostate, leading to less prostate cancer. I've heard that effect before from a different medication. Yeah, so what do we call this net androgen, not net androgens, but net androgen signaling? Mm -hmm. That's another layer to the androgen cake. Yep. Um, the, the glass of SHBG is delivering androgens of various strengths in your cup, in your mixed, in your mixed cocktail <laughs> of androgens. Um, uh, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. So I guess pivoting back to cardiovascular disease, and we talk about lipid management in type 1 diabetics versus the general population, um, there's one, I guess, feature that's a little bit different, and it relates to cholesterol absorption versus cholesterol synthesis. Mm -hmm. uh, we know in the general population, this is very 
heterogeneous, it's not uniform. There's some people that are going to hyper-respond to interventions aimed at lowering cholesterol absorption, most of which is not dietary cholesterol. Most of that is your own biliary cholesterol um, versus people that are going to hyper-respond to a suppression of cholesterol synthesis. So in type 1 diabetics, it seems to be the former. Um, one trial showed that patients responded like much better, uh, type 1 diabetic patients, mm -hmm. to 10 milligrams of ezetimibe compared to 40 milligrams of simvastatin, which is not the most potent statin, but yeah. you would still expect more net LDL lowering from the simvastatin versus yep. the ezetimibe. It was something to the tune of, I believe, about 15% lowering of LDL with simvastatin and 31% lowering with the ezetimibe, whereas uh, those findings were essentially flipped in type 2 diabetes with much more lowering with the simvastatin, 40 milligrams, than the ezetimibe, mm -hmm. 10 milligrams. Yeah, um, and this is a, an effect that would also be present in NAPOP. In general, with almost all lipid medications, you'll also see a significant decrease in that. A few other thoughts when it comes to that. Um, think about androgens or um, being on androgen replacement therapy, whether you're a male or a female, that likely makes you a slightly better statin candidate, um, which you may or may not have wanted to hear because as we've mentioned many times, androgens are going to activate or induce that enzyme HMG-CoA reductase that statins inactivate or inhibit. So they're the opposite types of therapy. And also, like you mentioned, you can check your cholesterol balance to see if you're an absorber or a synthesizer. But another good way to do this is if you have taken ezetimibe, how did you respond to that? Did you get a significant decrease? That's your good in vivo test to test your actual phenotype. Um, although a cholesterol balance test is kind of testing your phenotype because it tests specific fatty acids that are synthesized or absorbed. Yeah, and I think the cholesterol balance test is cheaper than the genetic test. And the in vivo test with a 30-day trial of ezetimibe and a lipid panel is the cheapest way to go about that. Um, and maybe the guidelines in the future shift to something like that where, you know, ezetimibe due to its, you know, relatively benign side effect profile and also perceived side effect profile. You know, we know that statins are perceived to have a much higher side effect profile than what actually is. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that psychological component makes its way into the guidelines, definitely is going to be involved in our shared decision process, this decision making process with our patients. Yeah, and I think a, a price of 30 days of ezetimibe, probably five to 10 cents per pill, unless you're getting it from your hormone optimization clinic, in which case it's probably a dollar per pill. But um, anyway, I think that's a, a pretty good summary of uh, the risk and benefits of ezetimibe, which again is a cholesterol absorption inhibitor versus statins. If you're a type one diabetic, then you might be a slightly better candidate for the ezetimibe. In general, until you reach age 40, uh, not a lot is recommended. Yeah, for type 1 diabetics, I believe with type 2 diabetics, I, be, I suppose I've never followed the guidelines here because I was always told and I've always practiced that if you have someone who's a type 2 diabetic, they're at an extremely elevated risk for heart disease and you get mm -hmm. that person on at least a low-dose statin for the positive pleiotropic effects on mm -hmm. the vascular system, even if they have normal levels of LDL and ApoB. Um, but the guidelines seem to suggest that unless that person has been type 2 diabetic, and again, this is ages 20 through 39 is a specific recommendation. Um, they say if, unless they've been diabetic for 10 years or have other ASCVD risk factors, 
then you don't prescribe a statin, but it would be very difficult to find a, let's say, 30-year-old diabetic who didn't have at least another risk factor mm. that you could say, okay, this justifies the prescription. Type 1 diabetes, again, this the big problem here is there are many fewer type 1 diabetics, so there is much less robust study and outcome data to say treating earlier is and for longer is better. Mm -hmm. But we know just based on the way that heart disease develops, and you think of your pack years of cholesterol, like we've talked about, that earlier and longer and lower is mm -hmm. going to be better, especially in an exquisitely high-risk group like yep. type 1 diabetes. And speaking of earlier and longer and lower doses, uh, we love to talk about beta cell preservation, the acute effect and the legacy effect, which I suppose, I don't think it's been definitively defined, but I would think the legacy effect is at least one month, if not longer, ideally years after starting the therapy and then being off that therapy. So the study that I mentioned earlier that I believe was done in Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, uh, some uh, Scandinavian or Northwestern European countries took uh, two groups of people and they, uh, I believe they were both on metformin. This was many years ago, probably 20 years ago when the study started. And they put one group on old school axenatide, the Gila monster venom. I think you had, you had inject very frequently. Um, it's even before liraglutide, which is Victoza, which even that I believe just went generic. But the axenatide, which was originally Bietta and then Bidurion, not that it matters, um, that group was chosen. And then they chose a second group that was on insulin glargine, so long-acting insulin. And they compared hemoglobin A1Cs over time and they were relatively similar. They took them off after about a year, then they put them back on. They took them off for, I think, four weeks. Mm -hmm. Put them on for a couple more years, a total of three years, so a very long period of time, and then took them off and followed them out at least one month. And as you expect, the GLP-1 or Xenotide group lost a significant amount more weight. After one year, they gained it all back, and uh, we'll include a screenshot because this is particularly interesting. Not that everything with Xenotide carries over to other GLP-1s, but if anything, you would think that the effect in other GLP-1s would be stronger since they're longer acting and dose relatively higher. And then the weight separated again. But what we are most interested here is C-peptide and these various indices that use C-peptide to calculate the function of the beta cell. Yeah, and you saw that even at, it wasn't statistically different, but there was a trend towards improvement after one year with the xenotide group. Mm -hmm. At three years, that's when the uh, the clinical difference became apparent and statistically significant. So I don't know if this was originally designed to be three years long, but I'm glad that the authors ran it for this duration. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have that sort of finding and, you know, thinking that, you know, this is perhaps a finding that uh, I believe one of the mechanism papers we we're looking at was speculating mm -hmm. this could be applied to some other GLP-1s now. Um, and the fact that there was not a substantial weight regain at three years mm -hmm. um, leads to believe that there could potentially be some longer lasting, like a legacy effect, not just on C-peptide production, but perhaps on satiety and appetite as mm -hmm. well with some of these agents. So uh, maybe good news for people taking these who think that they will be you know, off of them someday. They're not planning to take them forever. Uh, perhaps not good news if you have stock in some of these companies that you plan to hold forever. So I don't know, that was an interesting finding. And what I've said before about this is I don't think that, let's say someone does, you know, they're in damage control mode and they really need to 
get calories in check and they're using one of these agents doing well with it. They do that for two years. I don't think that two years of habitually consuming smaller portions, hopefully healthier meals, goes away 100% as soon as you remove that drug. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that kind of remains to be proven in a large cohort, but that's sort of my thinking about it and you know, getting people tools like you know, dietitians is extremely important and extremely mm-hmm. valuable. Yeah, and keep in mind that this uh, population used in the study, the cohort is from Europe and they likely exercised a lot more, they walked a lot more, and they likely had a better diet than a population in most areas of the United States. So another thing to keep in mind is when, uh, in general, in practice, when you take away a GLP-1, that period of time in the one to six months after is the most important to monitor a patient. And I would say 100% of the time, I use some sort of appetite suppressant, even if it's an over-the-counter appetite suppressant or um, uh, not necessarily stimulant, even something um, that's going to help activate stretch receptors in the stomach to help feel full. Um, It's a very important thing to keep in mind. But at the end of the day, as you said, it's all about developing those habits. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty good summary. So it's definitely an exciting time to be in medicine. More data is coming out now than ever. And I think the future looks particularly bright for type 1 diabetics and Mm -hmm. for medicine in general. Absolutely. As always, thank you for your time and thank you for listening. May God bless you with health and happiness.